This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. Today we're going to do something a bit different. I'm not going to have a guest. I'm just going to talk about some of the things that have come up in the last uh, six to eight weeks involving UFOs and that sort of thing. And I think it's important that we take a step back periodically to look to back to see where the field is going, to see what's happening in it, and if we can bring any semblance of sanity to this rather insane topic. Uh, as most of you probably know, not long ago I was... Lucky enough, I suppose, to interview Jacques Vallée and Paula Harris about her, his and her book, uh, Trinity, uh, The Best Kept Secret. I read the book, um, I, and many of my colleagues in the UFO field, I, and I, when I talk about these people, I'm thinking of the people who are really immersed in the topic, who have uh, spent years and years and years dedicated to researching the topic, people who know a great deal about the UFO field, not the surface of it. And ma the majority of them seem to be outraged by this book. And I say outraged, annoyed, irritated, surprised at the tone that it took because Jacques Vallée's earlier books, such as um, Anatomy of a Phenomenon, Challenge to Science, uh, those, those books seem to be well thought out, well researched, carefully sourced. And this latest book is a real disappointment. And, and I say that I, as, as someone who uh, had read his work uh, for, for many, many years, but who had never really actually spoken with him until we, had, we did the program. And what uh, bothered me about this book is basically there are two witnesses, uh, Remy Baca and Jose Payil, Two youngsters who saw the craft, saw the crash. Uh, Jacques said at one point, you know, it's the only case where the, somebody saw the object crash. And I'm not sure that they actually saw it hit the tower and then crash, but they did see the crash. But in the Roswell case, there were a number of people who saw something in the sky on the night that the UFO supposedly crashed in Roswell. So we do have some of that sort of testimony about it. One of the things that I noticed in the descriptions in what they were talking about parallels Roswell to a very great degree. And I mentioned this in my blog posting on it that I did at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. I mentioned that it seemed to be more contamination than corroboration. I asked Jacques Vallée about the uh, testimony of the young boys. I mean, there were seven and nine when this event took place. But they weren't interviewed then. They were interviewed decades later, and I'm thinking that there has been a great deal of contamination. One of the points I wanted to mention when I talked to uh, Jacques and Paula were this description in the book about what the aliens look like. They used the term, the Jerusalem cricket. 
And for those of you who've paid attention to uh, the Roswell case, you know that that is the very same description that Frankie Rowe used uh, decades ago, literally decades ago. She talked about the Jerusalem cricket, or what she called the child of the earth. It's the same thing. It's a, a tan-looking insect with a uh, brown spot on the head, sort of a brown, I guess, birthmark, something like that. During the great Roswell slides fiasco, Tom Carey was convinced that the body in the photograph, in the slides, the unfortunate uh, child who had, who had died very young and was mummified by the process. I mean, he died some 800 years earlier. But what, what got Tom's attention was this mark on the, on the skull that looked like the markings you see on these Jerusalem crickets. And that convinced him the story was true. And now we have this showing up in this tale from San Antonio, New Mexico. And that bothered me that that, that was right out of the Roswell case. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of things when they talked about, uh, we talked about on, on this. The military, of course, coming in and, and cleaning up the area. I uh, wanted to ask them about the cavalier nature that the military took in guarding this thing. Here we have a craft of unknown origin, not necessarily extraterrestrial, but we're, we're in the middle of, not the middle, we're at the very end of World War II. The Japanese have launched balloon bombs, which eventually killed uh, six people in the United States. The idea was to set great areas of the forest on fire and this sort of thing with these bombs that would... Uh, carry on the jet stream that they discovered, it would cross the Pacific Ocean and then the mechanisms would release the bombs. Uh, and it, uh, I think 250 or something like that ended up in the United States. Three of them landed in the state of Iowa. I think they were seen as far east as Michigan, far south as Mexico City. Things were found in Canada. The point, the point simply being we have um, all of that going on at the end of the Second World War. So the war is still going on, and, and their people are still worried about this. So this thing falls near San Antonio, New Mexico, and the military comes in to, to clean it up. But they don't guard the area. I don't understand this. They, bring in, they ask permission to create a road. They ask permission to build a gate and a fence so they can bring in a flatbed truck and cart this thing away. But they don't guard it. I don't get it. Um, Remy, I think it was Remy, tells Paula Harris that uh, they knew the schedule of the soldiers. And when they went to eat at the little cafe there in San Antonio, they sneaked back on the site and under the tarp, this blue tarp, they, um, Jose, the more, more adventurous of the two, crawled up inside of the craft and looked around and peeled this thing off the wall. I think you'll remember they talked about that in my interview with them. Yeah, it was eventually analyzed, and at, at the moment, the analysis suggests it's terrestrial metal, or there's nothing in it to suggest it's not of uh, terrestrial origin, which is interesting. So I was bothered by that. I didn't get a chance to ask them about that. Um, they had mentioned that this is the first modern crash of a UFO in the United States or anywhere in the world, I, because they, of course, talked about the... Um, Aurora, Texas thing. I was going to ask him about um, Cape Girardeau, which was a crash in 1941. The evidence is equally persuasive, meaning simply there's not much of it. 
Um, we have the families of the people talking about what they had seen and what they had they'd done. There was a photograph of the alien body from Cape Girardeau taken, and the woman uh, had seen it many, many times. But of course, the photograph disappeared. We have in in the San Antonio crash, the Trinity crash, all this debris picked up, but it's uh, disappeared. They talked about how the soldiers who were cleaning the site didn't do a very good job. They would they didn't carry all of the debris away. They kicked it in the crevices and covered it with a little bit of dirt and that sort of thing and left it on site. I find that extremely difficult to believe because they, the military at the time wouldn't have known what they had, even if it wasn't uh, extraterrestrial. They didn't know what they had. And so I think that they would have taken steps to guard the site so other people couldn't get onto it. But I, uh, I wondered about that. But since that point, in uh, they have... Uh, done flood mitigation in the area and those places where the metal was supposedly kept or hidden is now buried under 20 or 30 feet of soil so they don't know exactly where to look and they don't know how to find it the point simply is all the material is gone there's nothing to analyze it's 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 gone um i linked on a blog posting i did it is two pictures of the uh, debris that's on the internet so that you can find them yourself but the, the, uh, on the blog, there's a, a link to pictures of the debris. Nothing extraordinary there at all. But as I say, the problem is we're, we're, we're stuck with two youngsters who are involved. They bring in, they talk about this third witness, this third wonderful witness. Turns out it's an adopted daughter. The problem is she was born in 1953. Not, she wasn't there in 1945. She was roaming the area, and we didn't get this, and I, I should have brought it up when I spoke to them. We didn't get to it. She was roaming the area in 1960. So we're looking at, what, 15 years down the road, and the big burned area is still there? That sort of thing? It, it just didn't make good sense to me. There were a lot of problems with this, but the, the real point I think we should make is how they tend to separate all of this. It's a unique experience. It was this, it was that. But when we get down to it, an awful lot of the information seems to be related to the Roswell case. The descriptions talked about uh, a little bit in the Roswell case, the Jerusalem cricket, the military operation coming in. Oh, the one thing I didn't want, I didn't get to, and I should have, <clears throat> is when um, back in 1945, the army came back to the house of one of the boy's parents and searched it for stuff, supposedly debris or something, and they took a lot of stuff away. And then they said, uh, well, you don't have to worry about what that was, it's just a weather balloon. I'm thinking, no, not in 1945, we weren't talking in terms of weather balloons. That wouldn't have been something that was said then. That was, that was to me, a, a big red flag to this tale that they said, that the Army said, oh, we just collected some weather balloons. You know, that came out of the Roswell case, strictly out of the Roswell case. So when we get down to the bottom line in this book, what we have is the testimony of two men, 50 years after the fact, one of whom had attempted to communicate with various UFO researchers. Don Schmidt talked about this when I interviewed him last month. And you can go listen to that uh, interview uh, uh, on the embedded audio player on, the, on my blog. Um, and one of the pushbacks from that was, well, Don said it was Ray 
Baca, and there's a lot of Bacas in the area, so it's probably a different guy. I wasn't a different guy. In their book, they talk about how Remy had tried to contact Stan Friedman, and Friedman wasn't interested in that in, in the case as well. I don't know what they said to Stan to, to turn him off from this, because it was, seems, seems like something Stan would have been all over. So we have, we have that problem. So we have them approaching Roswell researchers. I think at the time that Remy approached Don Schmidt, I may have been in Iraq. Uh, uh, so they, they didn't bother to approach me as well. But uh, we have those sorts of problems. We've got the military involved. They talked about a pilot that flew over the area, but the information came from his son. The pilot wasn't available. He was a member of the 234th Based Unit, I think is what they called it. It was based at Alamogordo. I've been in communication, have been in communication with the uh, historians there, a very nice woman who is, I spent an extraordinary amount of time helping me out here, and I, I feel sorry for all the time she's taken to do this, looking for the guy's father in the records of the base. Now, unlike Roswell, we had a yearbook that helped us out immensely. There was no document like that available from the Alamogordo Army Airfield at the time. So I have not been able to find um, people who might have been his friends that he might have talked to, some way of corroborating this tale. So what we're left with is a tale that is not really corroborated by anybody but the participants in it. We're, we have no physical debris other than these two pieces that uh, the, the testing shows them to be of terrestrial manufacture, so that doesn't help us at all. I am not surprised, overly surprised, there's no letters or documents or journals or diaries kept by the um, Hispanic members, the, the, the people in New Mexico at the time. I'm not surprised about that at all that we haven't been able to find. So we don't have much in the way of corroboration. This, and the secret hasn't been well kept. I mean, I've known about it for 10 years or 20, 11 years. Other people have talked about it. So the book itself, I think, deserves a critique. And I have a long critique, as I said, on my blog about the book. And it, it outlines these in, I think, a little bit more coordinated fashion so that you can understand exactly where I ran into problems with the history that's described in the book and with the analysis provided by uh, Jacques Vallée and Piala Harris about the, um, about the crash. When we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about Project Blue Book and Jacques Vallée's claim that it goes back to 1945 and I, I, because I found that an interesting statement. So uh, I will be back right after this, so please stick around. <laughs> myself talking about various things and I'll let you all in the uh, on the joke um, the the events in in uh, the Trinity book take place a month after the atomic bomb explosion in at the Trinity site in New Mexico and practically everybody who's alive in New Mexico in 1945 says yeah I saw the flash and one of the boy's parents her mo one of the boy's mothers had peeked through a curtain and saw the flash of the light and it 
blinded her in one eye, and that was, the, I think, the reason we had that nice bit of bumper music. When we went away, I promised to talk about Project Blue Book. And as you remember, if you've listened to this uh, interview with Jacques Vallée, I asked him specifically about Project Blue Book, because I, if I understood what he was saying in the book, that Project Blue Book went back to 1945. There's nothing in the index. He talks about the index. I got a copy of the index. The, um, the military, when the Project Blue Book files were released into the public domain, they went through all the files and crossed out all the names of the witnesses. Uh, I've mentioned before, Don, Don, Bob Cornett and I went to Maxwell Air Force Base right after they were, the, the files were released and uh, got to see them before they, redact, before they were redacted. And we went through and we went through all the inter, unidentified cases and wrote down the names of everybody. And we did the same thing with photographic cases, physical evidence cases and other interesting cases. So we can put the names back in some of them. The other thing I should point out is the Army did, the Army, the Air Force didn't do a really good job of redacting the names because almost every case that you read, you can find the name in there somewhere. Uh, very few times have I failed to find the name of the witness in there. Oftentimes it's in newspaper articles that are appended to the, to the file. Sometimes they just miss it. The one that cracks me up, and I've, I've mentioned this before, I'm sure, is the Kenneth Arnold sighting where they even went to the point of, of redacting Arnold's initials in a transcript that he that was conducted over the telephone with Arnold and a military officer. And on the very first page, in grease pencil, in letters about a half inch high, it says Arnold case or Arnold sighting. Um, they redacted the initials, but they didn't manage to catch that big Arnold uh, reference. <clears throat> so I was interested in that, saying it went back to 1945. And I know there are some cases in the Project Blue Book files that are from May and June of 1947 before Arnold had seen the object, made his report. And there was discussion of a unofficial UFO investigation began in December of 1946. Howard McCoy, who I've mentioned on the program before, was an intelligence officer involved with the Foo Fighters in during the Second World War, involved with uh, studying the ghost rockets in Scandinavia in 1946. And in late in 19, late in 1946, uh, he got a call from Twining telling him to set up an unofficial investigation of UFOs. And so the fact that there may have been citing information in the Blue Book files going back to 40, 1945 is not that unusual. From what I understand, a lot of that earlier stuff from 45 and 46 is now buried under the golf course at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. They took the files out and buried them. I don't know, I don't know why, what was in those files that would have been that significant that they would have done that, but they, they broke off the Project Blue Book stuff from, from uh, May and June of 1947. Now, I will also point out that Project Sign... Um, which was the official name. Well, let me take a step back and, and go at this one more way, one other way. Uh, in their book, they talk about, or Jacques Vallée in the interview talked about there wasn't any classified part of Project Blue Book. That simply is not exactly accurate. In 1948, when the project was created and officially began, Project Sign, the name was classified. It was called Project Saucer. So you go back and you read the newspapers and magazines of that era. They talk about Project Saucer. They were talking about Project Sign. The name was eventually compromised, and which may be the reason they changed it to Project Grudge. But but the point simply is there is classified material, was classified material in the Project Blue Book files. You can see the markings where they were crossed out. Um, 
secret was the highest ones I found, but there were files that were classified in Project Blue Book. Now, when I've gone through the Project Blue Book files, and, and I've mentioned this before, I've done a book called The Best of Project Blue Book, and I've scanned some of the best cases in Project Blue Book that haven't gotten a lot of publicity or more publicity than they should have. Uh, looking at the Air Force analysis of the case, what we could bring into the discussion based on what we know today as opposed to what the Air Force knew back when they were conducting the investigation. So there are times when we found stuff, we knew stuff, we learned stuff that the Army, or the Air Force didn't have access to simply because the uh, information hadn't been developed. And, and there's a number of points like that. For example, and I've mentioned this before as well, in the Leveland case, the official uh, conclusion is ball lightning, which is preposterous. But in the official file, if you look at Sheriff um, Clem's report, his, his statement to the Air Force, what he says is, apparently is he didn't get very close to it and he just saw a streak of light in the distance. When you go back and you look at the newspaper clippings that we now have access to, from various newspapers, uh, the sheriff was contacted by multiple newspapers and gave them statements. He talked about seeing an object that was uh, oval-shaped and bright red. There is stuff developed by Don Burlinson, who investigated the case uh, now 20 years ago, talking to the sheriff's wife, talking to the mechanic of the... Um, police department, who said that the day after the sighting, the, the, the mechanic was told to check out the car because apparently it had stalled. Something you don't get in the Air Force file. The sheriff got close enough that it stalled his car and he saw the object. And so when it, putting together the best of Project Blue Book, I could bring that sort of analysis to the uh, cases and provide additional information that may swing you one way or another. Now, granted, there are some cases in the Blue Book file where the Air Force did a very good job of collecting the information, especially during the Ed Ruppelt era back in the early 1950s. Um, in the Lubbock Lights case, for example, he went to Lubbock a couple of times and talked to the witnesses, talked to Carl Hart. Picture of Carl Hart Jr. at 19 in the Project Blue Book files, for example, which is very, very interesting. Uh, but the point is he did a, a, a very good investigation of it. And you get the feeling from the file in, in Ruppelt's book, the report on unidentified flying objects, he says, well, he knows what the, what the objects were, but he can't report it because if he does, then people would know who the scientist was he talked to. Um, so he provides no real explanation for the Lubbock lights. I think the Lubbock lights now in the Air Force files is labeled as birds, but that's preposterous. It doesn't work. There were no birds that flew in formations like the ones that Carl Hart photographed in 1952 or 1951 in Lubbock at that time that would have reflected the light. I think there was at the glossy ibis, which is a type of duck, but it doesn't have a white breast. It has a very dark colored breast, so it wouldn't have been reflecting the lights, which would have given the photographs. So there are things in the Project Blue Book files, but what was interesting is Valet talking about it going back to 1945. I think that's probably accurate. And I think that those files have disappeared. He talked about it not being classified. I don't think that is accurate. I think that has, um, I think there was not a lot of unclassified material collected, but there was classified sightings going on. And in fact, in uh, 1967, there were the sightings in Belt, Montana, mm -hmm. many, many sightings in Belt, Montana, but the missiles in one flight 
at the uh, Maelstrom Air Force Base was shut down by an outside source. That becomes a matter of national security. And so that information was not available to the content committee when they went through the uh, their investigation. Um, and that part of the Belt Montana sightings would, would have been classified. Not necessarily because of the UFOs, although UFOs were reported over the, the, the proper uh, launch control facilities and that sort of thing. The, the point is the missiles were disabled by an outside force, and that would be something that you wouldn't want our competitors to know, that we that it could be controlled by an outside force. And I think in today's environment, when we see an awful lot of cyber hacking into various databases or various uh, controls causing all kinds of trouble, the, the pipeline shut down, for example, um, a few months ago, I think there's now, there was there was a couple of weeks ago talk of a an attack on meat processing plants and things like that show that this outside influence now the way everything is set up can be very very devastating so we take a look at the project blue book files there is an awful lot of good information hidden in those files that we have to take a look at you have to read the case files though to find it um, on the blog i talk about um the recovery of some metallic debris in Crownsville, Maryland in 1957. The whole, the whole case file I put on the blog because it was only like 13 or 14 pages. And there are contradictions in that case that makes you wonder about it. At one point they said, well, the object was very small, only three feet in diameter, and it disintegrated on its way down and, and they picked up one piece of debris. In another point, in, this, another point in discussing the, the case, one of the witnesses whose names I put back in the file, even though they've been redacted, I was able to come up with the names, um, <clears throat> talked about the object being as big as a house, at, seen at a, a thousand feet or 2,000 feet. So there's a contradiction like that, and there's no effort to reconcile this. What? Why is there this big discrepancy? Um, the Air Force labels the case as insufficient data for a scientific analysis. And they say it's because the sample recovered had disappeared between the recovery on the hospital grounds and it's showing up at the Air Force lab. Now, if you read the file carefully, what you find out is when they picked up some of the debris, the, the, the small piece of debris, it seemed to disintegrate in their hands. They put it in a plastic bag and shipped it off to the laboratory. I think the problem is it seems that the whole thing just sort of vaporized in the plastic bag so when it got to the air force all that would have been left in there would have been, been some gas and when they opened the bag they would have lost that evidence for what what it would have been worth but it was an interesting case um that that shows what you can find out by reading the entire case there's another case late in the um project blue book files where a major and, and I talk about it in the best of the Project Blue Book Files. A major is tasked with investigating a UFO case or UFO sightings in Florida, and he's just outraged that his time is being wasted on this UFO investigation. Um, he labels it as a kite. He says the enlisted guys that he talked to just didn't have a good grasp on it, and they weren't very bright, and they weren't, they weren't college graduates or anything like that, which is a very dismissive way of getting rid of the witnesses. Um, even though they're Air Force personnel, um, he's just not that interested in it. And, and that was one of the things I also noticed in the file about the um, sighting in White Sands in November of 1957, the military policemen involved. They said, well, they were youngsters. They didn't know what they were talking about. They were 19, 20, 21 years old. Uh, I think they were 20, 21 years old. I'm thinking 
I was a helicopter pilot and aircraft commander in Vietnam at 19. I was a flight lead at 19. The point is, the age in this, in some of these cases, is completely and totally irrelevant. It's what you do and what you what you are able to do. So dismissing the witnesses because of their age or their lack of uh, college education is just a way of, of belittling the sighting and, and writing it off so we don't have to deal with the details. But as I say, um, Project Blue Book did some good work. Unfortunately, after 1953, it became more of a public relations outfit than it did an investigative tool. And so you get an awful lot of stupid stupid uh, uh, answers to UFO sightings. And you can see by looking at the histories of the men who were put in charge of Project Blue Book at that time frame, were, were rapidly anti-flying uh, saucer, anti-extraterrestrial, anti-everything. It, it was a waste of their time. And I think part of that is because they knew if they were given command or the OIC officer in charge of Project Blue Book, it was pretty much a dead end. Their career was over. You did not assign your hot shots to Project Blue Book. And I think that might have been some of the resentment that shows up in the Project Blue Book files. But that's something that I learned by going through the files. And I bring, as I say, I bring some of that into the best of Project Blue Book, which of course is available on Amazon for those of you who want to look. When we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about UFOs in the deep state and why the secrecy persists until today. So we'll take charge of that and see what's happening right after this. So please stick around. I am back by myself. Um, you know, I, sometimes on the program, I want to get a little bit frivolous. And I, I fear that the audience isn't going to understand that. It's my, I have to throttle down my personality once in a while. I want to make jokes and things about what's going on. Sometimes I don't think the guests would, would appreciate it. Uh, we had a guest on uh, several weeks ago who believed in um, MJ-12 and I wanted the bumper music to, to be, do you believe in magic? Because I thought that was appropriate. And I don't know how many people understood that, that joke that we did leading into the segment about MJ-12. But I'll try to be serious uh, here. Uh, I was uh, intrigued by Terry Lovelace's story of his abduction experience. I'm not sure that it was all alien, I am sure that he was subjected to chemical and hypnotic regression by the Air Force Office of Special Investigation. And the reason I believe that is because talking to John Burroughs and Jim Pettiston and Charles Holt about the Rendlesham Forest case, everybody involved in that was subjected to some sort of chemical and hypnotic regression. It's 
fairly well documented. So that the Air Force OSI conducting those sorts of um, activities, investigations, wouldn't surprise me at all. And I wanted, to do, I wanted to explore that more fully. And I had proposed to a publisher doing a book about um, um, the Air Force, I called the UFOs and the Air Force OSI. And I said the dark state, meaning the deep state. And the publisher said, you know, we don't think people will understand what the dark, what Air Force OSI is. So we kind of changed things up a bit and called it uh, UFOs in the deep state. So there is discussion of the deep state, and I think it's important to understand what the deep state is and what's going on. So I, I was led to that by Terry Lovelace's story. And it's an intriguing story. We've interviewed Terry Lovelace on this program. Um, there's an embedded audio player. You can find uh, his story uh, on that, or you type his name into the search engine, and it'll take you to the specific um, uh, information about his case, and, and the link to it is embedded in that as well. So you can take a look at that. But the question has been posed to me frequently, and I didn't have an answer for us. Why does the secrecy persist until today? And I'd say, I don't know. We are now so involved in space flight that it makes no sense. You go back to the 40s and space flight was really not much other than science fiction. Rockets couldn't get out of the atmosphere. Um, they, they were kind of a anomaly. They've been using rockets, and I say rockets as opposed to missiles, rockets uh, having no guidance system. In warfare, for literally centuries, you know, you just light the fuse and hope it lands somewhere near to harm your enemy. Uh, so interstellar flight, actually it was interplanetary flight for the most part, uh, wasn't a big deal in, in the 40s and the 50s. But then we, we, we began moving out into space. A lot of programs about space flight and interstellar flight. Uh, Star Trek, of course, brings to mind immediately. Um, then we end up with Star Wars. We have an awful lot of that kind of science fiction now with a lot of interstellar flight, people going to other planets and other solar systems all along. Uh, we've had lots of stories of alien invasions, Independence Day, for example, or one of my favorites, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Um, I was going to say that wasn't much of an alien invasion, but it really was. Um, so we've been exposed to this. There was the big story of uh, War of the Worlds. Supposedly, the broadcast from 1938 during Halloween supposedly caused a big panic. People listening to the radio and didn't get it was a, uh, a, a radio show, not a real news broadcast. It was hidden in the guise of the news broadcast. But they said a number of times during the program that it was a fictional account. And the newspapers played up this big idea that there was panic all over the country, or, or especially in the in the New England area. Turned out not to be true, uh, according to uh, scientific and sociological research conducted much later. But that was the story. And so the idea was originally that the reason they kept the information suppressed was to avoid a panic. 1947, this makes sense to me, especially after coming out of World War II, not knowing what our, our, our competitors in the world are going to do, a lot of talk about um, what the Soviets are going to do and that sort of thing. So it made sense that uh, we were exposed to something that fell 
or a phenomenon that was going on. Weren't sure what it was, what it was, how it was going to shake out. They needed time to, to investigate. So they suppressed the information as best they could. Makes sense to me. But the, but the question always came back to why suppress it today? We're, we're used to this. If, if they announced tomorrow that there were UFOs, nobody would care. We have been, we would say, you know, this has been going on since 1947 and they haven't affected my life whatsoever. Of course, of course, in my case, that's not true. They've affected my life greatly because I've spent a lot of time doing UFO research and writing books about it. But for the majority of people, it was just, you know, a side issue, something that was interesting or not interesting or whatever. So there was really no reason to keep the information suppressed. Uh, and I, I couldn't understand that. I also I also had another point. You know, so can't the president find out? And my answer was always been, if I was the president, yeah, I can find out. I go to the director of central intelligence and I say to him, you know, what do you know about UFOs? He says, I'm sorry, Mr. President, I can't tell you that's classified. My next my next sentence is, fine, you're fired. Bring in your deputy. And I'll go down the line till I can find the guy that'll get me the information. So these were two things that I had going for me, I guess, that uh, were confusing. I, I did not have good answers for these things. And in doing the research in UFOs in the deep state, I think I found the answers. One of them is a point of national security. And I touched on it briefly with the Belt Montana thing just, just moments ago, that there is a national security uh, component to the UFO phenomenon. Doesn't matter whether the UFOs are extraterrestrial spacecraft, uh, natural phenomenon, um, trustfully based craft of some kind, none of that matters because the missile silos, the missiles in the silos were shut down. That makes it a matter of national security. You don't want the enemy to know you can do that. So I think that's one of the reasons the secrecy persisted until today is because there are a number of reports of UFOs interacting with our atomic strike force. And they don't want these sorts of things to leak out. Even if um, it was extraterrestrials that could do it with a technology that is far superior to anything we have, the mere idea that it can be done is something you didn't want to, to give to the enemy, to our competitors. You didn't want them to know we could do that. The other thing is, how do you keep the president out of this? Well, I talked to um, a fellow named Dan Sheehan. He's a lawyer, been around the UFO field for a while. Has crazy white hair. But then again, a lot of people had crazy white hair. I'm thinking of Albert Einstein and one of my college professors, Clarence Andrews, had crazy white hair. So that doesn't disqualify him. And I was talking to him about this, and he was called by President-elect Jimmy Carter to... Uh, investigate UFOs for him. So he was working on that. One of the things that uh, Dan Sheehan learned was that Carter had brought in George H.W. Bush. In that time frame, when right after Carter was elected president, um, the uh, interest in UFOs was, was very, very high. Carter was very, very interested in UFOs, and he wanted the answer. He actually campaigned saying, I will, I will get answers. Sheehan went in to talk to him about that, and he was told that H.W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, was the director of central intelligence in that time frame. They're having their discussion 
about this whole thing. Bush says, I would like to remain as director of central intelligence when you become president. And Carter said, I'm sorry, I'm bringing my own guy in. So Bush now knew he's out. Nothing he can do, uh, nothing Carter can do to him at this point. So Carter asked him about the UFOs, and Bush says, I can't tell you, it's classified. He did say one thing that was critical. You are the president-elect. You don't have the need to know yet. So Bush refused to answer the question, suggested a way he might be able to find the answers and brought in, and that was why Sheehan was brought in into the, the discussion. Once Carter became president, that changes the complexion of the story just a bit. And I think what happens is that we see the um, agencies involved in this. And I would, I would imagine you go to the CIA, the DIA, the NSA, every alphabet type of agency you can think of. You'd go to the Air Force, you'd go to the Army, you would go to the Navy, you'd go to the military services, the intelligence services, and ask them about that. Or you'd go to the director of central intelligence and say, I want to report on this. And the answer would be, I'm sorry, that information is scattered out. We need time to collect it. We need time to bring together a comprehensive, detailed analysis of the situation for you, Mr. President. Give us some time. And the president says, sure, why not? I have no problems with that. And then affairs of state get in the way. With Carter, it was the um, Iranian hostage crisis, I'm sure, diverted his attention. So he never got around to getting the answers to what he wanted. So I think that's the way they operate. You know, we don't, we have this information. It's compartmentalized. The president can see it if he knows who to ask and he knows what questions to ask. And they, they, they keep him out of it by saying, we will gather it for you and prepare a comprehensive investigation, which somehow never gets done. We can look at the Clinton administration and, and some of the things that diverted his attention. And when the boy in, I think it was Ireland, asked him about Roswell, he said, well, they, they haven't told me about it. Well, yeah, they haven't told you about it. doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that you haven't been read into that bit of intelligence, that bit of information. So they keep the president out of it that way. Other presidents, and I, I suspect uh, President Trump would have been among them, wouldn't have been interested in the UFOs. I think when the TikTok videos were released, uh, President Trump's attitude was, yeah, I'm not really interested in that stuff. Uh, he may have become more interested in it after uh, some of the information was released about those videos. But at that point, I don't think he had any intention of asking about UFOs. We have um, other presidents making similar statements. We know Ronald Reagan was very interested in the UFOs. We know that um, we know that uh, Barack Obama was interested in the UFOs. But somehow that information never gets from the agencies controlling it to the president, to the public. It's buried in the deep state. And the deep state is, in fact, the people who are bureaucrats. And that's the key. The bureaucrats who are there in high-level jobs from administration to administration. Their careers may be interrupted when a new administration comes in for a few years, but they come back. Look at who uh, President um, um, Biden has appointed to his cabinet and his high-level positions, and who was in the uh, Obama administration in those positions. It's the same people. It, people have 
been in those positions now since the Clinton administration. They're controlling the information. They're controlling the access. And they all know all we got to do is wait four years or eight years, and this guy's gone, and it's going to be somebody else, and then we can worry about his interests and where he wants to go uh, when he or she is elected, when he or she becomes president. Don't want to limit it now in today's environment because we're going to end up with a female president at some point and probably sooner rather than later. A prediction that has no relevance to this program, I might add, so please don't write to me about it. Anyway, um, all this is laid out in UFOs in the Deep State, and I think it'll provide some clues about how things have operated for so many years and why the secrecy persists until today. So you'll get a chance to take a look at the book. When we come back, I'll talk about the current situation and the prospects of disclosure. So please, stick around. are back and I say we as in the royal we I suppose we are not amused we are back uh, we've been talking about a lot of things in the UFO field that I think have current interest and the one thing I have not done and I meant to do it I haven't done it on a couple of programs is I want to mention that there are many fine programs about the paranormal that you can found on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at xzbn.net. So take a look at the listings on the, on the website, and I'm sure you're going to find some programming that will be of great interest to you. My favorite program, by the way, is A Different Perspective, but I figured you all knew that already. I think... What we need to chat about now is the current UFO situation and the prospects of disclosure. A lot of stuff going on in the world of the UFO, as you all know. We had the, um, the, the stimulus bill that had a writer attached about UFOs and getting a report to Congress about UFOs. And... The, the, the discussion has been that there's going to be a classified version. I'm not sure what good a classified version does to us out here. It'll probably be more of the same. There's discussion of it being delayed because they're pulling this together from all sorts of sources. Um, so we have to take a look at all of that and wait for that to come out. But what we do have are the Navy videos, which are interesting, but not conclusive. And I say that because almost all of the videos released have been taken, created through some sort of electronic device. Um, the, some of the uh, more interesting from the USS Oklahoma, for example, the guys were down in the CIC Center, the um, Combat Control, Cam Combat Information Center. It's usually buried in the bowels of the ship. They don't have portholes to look out and that sort of thing. They're looking at electronic devices. So when you hear their discussion of what's going on and you see the video that's being taken, it's they're not looking at the object itself from the deck. They're looking at a video image. 
And there's some discussion about video glitches and the way the computer systems identify things and that sort of stuff. So we hear their, uh, their, their, their comments, their exclamations during this, but they're not seeing it personally. And the one question I tried to get answered on the Omaha was, did anybody see it? The objects outside that were not in the combat information center. And the answer seems to be no, because it was taken at 11 o'clock at night, so most of the sailors would have been asleep except the, the crew on duty. And there's no indication that there were sailors on deck that saw these sorts of things. And we have some of the same stuff going on with the, uh, the Tic Tac video and all of that. They were watching it through electronic devices, not seeing it visually. Now, there is some discussion about the possibility of, of, of um, airmen seeing things I say airmen, Navy pilots, Navy um, aviators, seeing seeing at uh, seeing things outside the cockpit visually, and we had one photograph taken with a cell camera, for example, but that's really not the same as the videos that we see. So we have something going on. When the Navy says it's a verified video, it does not mean it's an extraterrestrial craft. It means that this is a video that was taken by naval personnel at some point during their duties. And it had been sent to um, whatever headquarters or command centers uh, they needed to be sent to. So we're not saying we're not saying this is validation of an extraterrestrial craft, although we're saying this is validation of a UFO. If we can split that fine hair, meaning simply that we've got a UFO, we just don't know what it is, and it's not necessarily extraterrestrial, and it may be an artifact created by the uh, digital equipment being used. So that kind of moves us to disclosure. And the reason I say it moves us to disclosure, when the, the Tic Tac videos came out and there was all this discussion in the news media about it, I thought we'd taken steps closer to disclosure. I thought we were moving in that direction. But it seems we've moved backwards from that somewhat. There was a, an astronomer who came out a couple of weeks ago and talked about the... Uh, videos being a, not an astronomer, I'm sorry, a physicist, talking about the videos being an artificial artifact of the digital equipment, the electronics being used, which suggests a step back. <clears throat> we have to take a look at all of that sort of information and realize where it's going. We've talked about, John Greenwald and I have talked about, this being Condon 2.0. And what we mean there is the content committee was designed specifically when the um, interest in UFOs w w hit a peak. And it was designed to get the Air Force out of the investigation of UFOs and convince people there was nothing to them. If you, you go back and look at the history of it, and, and it's on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, there's all kinds of information about there. The Hippler letter, for example. Colonel Hippler was a uh, Air Force officer involved with liaison between the Condon Committee and the, in the, in the Air Force. And he wrote in the letter exactly what he wanted, the, what they wanted to be found. They wanted the Air Force to be found having committed <laughs> a, a good investigation, that the Air Force had uh, uh, <clears throat> done a fine job of, of investigating. There was nothing of scientific value that could be learned by studying UFOs. And there were no national security implications. Well, we already know the national security implications is untrue because we've got those sightings. But it was designed to get people to de determine there was nothing to UFOs and we could appeal to an authority. 
Well, there's nothing to it. The University of Colorado studied UFOs under scientific venue, and they concluded there was nothing to it. Well, yeah, that's what they were supposed to do, and that's exactly what they did. Condit committees exposed as the, um, I don't want to say hoax, but, but exposed as the program it was meant to be to do specific things that had really nothing to do with identifying UFOs, merely moving the Air Force out of UFO investigation. That's exactly what it did. So we have this appeal to authority, nothing to UFOs, the Condit Committee said so. Now we move to the current situation. We've got an awful lot of information coming out of Pentagon sources. We have an awful lot of information suggesting one thing. There are conflicting reports. We have reporters and, and, and when I say reporters, I'm thinking of, of almost everybody. I would consider myself a reporter in some venue uh, talking about UFOs. Um, the blogosphere is full of people who are reporters of a certain kind. Many are biased uh, one way or another. We have legitimate journalists who are clearly biased and are admitting it in today's environment. Not that long ago, a number of reporters admitted that they rejected the idea that the virus came from the Wuhan labs because the president had said so and they didn't like the president. So rather than reporting the facts, they said, oh, there's, it's been debunked. Who debunked it? Nobody, but that's the story that was out. It's been debunked, so we can go with that. And that's where we've been on, in UFO phenomena for a long time, where it's been debunked by the authorities. And now we get to the point where we've got this information coming out. I fear what's going to happen is it's going to be debunked again um, by setting us up with specific cases and the good cases, the information that we really need to determine what's going on is going to remain hidden. It may be in a classified part of the reports that are coming down the road. It may be, um, ignored. It may be just buried so deep that those people who are responsible for creating this report don't know about it. Back in 1949, there was an investigation done for the, I think for the Navy. It was a report that came out in 1949 saying that they could find no evidence that UFOs or alien spacecraft or extraterrestrial. But there was a caveat in that where they said, even though we had top secret clearances, there were areas we did not have clearance to get into meaning your top secret clearance doesn't give you everything you need to know. So I, I fear that we're going to end up in some kind of a situation like that, where um, the information that we receive is going to be less than exciting. It's going to be seen sort of as Condon 2.0, that um, everything that needs to be done for national security is being done. Don't worry about it. We're taking care of it type of thing. The other point is there really is no motivation for disclosure. I can't think of one thing that would benefit the people in power, who are the ones who would have to make this decision, by disclosing the UFO information. The point of them, the point they uh, want to make, the, the, the motivation for those people is to retain their power. And by power, they make money as well. We all know that. But... A, a, a suggestion of a terrestrial, an extraterrestrial civilization that is technologically superior to ours, and to get here from wherever they come from, they have to be technologically superior, which doesn't mean they're 
invaders or anything like that. It just means their civilization is more advanced than ours, and hopefully it's more civilized than ours. But it suggests this extraterrestrial civilization, this technology is superior to ours, and they could uh, they, they foresee that as losing power. They have no vo- motivation to expose the UFO information. And the other side of the coin is it's been 70-some years, 75 years, since all of this became part of uh, the United States history, if you will. And they look at that and say, well, you know, they haven't invaded yet. They're probably not going to invade. There's nothing we really need to worry about. You know, they're just out there and there's really not we can do much about it. We don't want to admit that. So we'll just not say anything. And in intelligence work, that's what you do. You, Even though you know the capability of the, the enemy uh, and you know things are going on, you don't admit that uh, and hope they don't say anything about it that would make you look bad. And then the best example uh, that I can think of off the top of my head is when Gary Powers was shot down over Russia and President Eisenhower said, we're not flying spy planes over Russia. And of course, they trot out Gary Powers and says, here's your pilot, and gives lie to that whole thing. But the point simply is, the idea was, well, the, we don't know what the Russians had. We don't know if he had the pilot. We don't. The plane was supposed to be destroyed. It was supposed to be, Powers was supposed to commit suicide by destroying his plane, and he didn't do it. Uh, but but here we have the uh, government denying something and hoping the Soviets don't have enough information to make us look bad. And, uh, of course, they did at that time. And I think that's where we are with the, the UFO phenomenon. Uh, they haven't made their presence known by landing um, in Washington, D.C., or London, or Tehran, or uh, Hanoi, just thinking of capitals around the world, where they could land and say, here we are, and, and that ends the whole discussion at that point. So I, I just don't know that disclosure is coming, coming unless there's some sort of an event that um, precipitates it. And that event is not in our hands, it's in their hands. It's in the, uh, the alien hands, if there are in fact aliens. You can tell by my discussion, I lean toward the extraterrestrial. I lean in that direction. I would like to see better evidence. I would like to see some really concrete evidence, and we just don't get that. Uh, and a good example was the Trinity book that uh, Jacques Vallée and Biala Harris had just written. Um, they talk about all of this evidence and this 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 uh, corroboration, and when we get down to the bottom line, it's really not there. It's just an interesting story. Oh, and I meant to ask Jacques Vallée, and I should have, if he catches blowback from being a science fiction writer, because I catch that all the time. That that thought just popped into my head. People are saying, well, you can't believe what Kevin Randall says because he writes science fiction. Well, Jacques Vallée writes science fiction, as does Bruce McAbee and a number of other science, uh, UFO researchers, so it, it doesn't matter that way. Anyhow, that kind of covers everything I wanted to do today about UFOs, the Vallée book, Project Blue book, UFOs in the Deep State, and uh, Disclosure. I will be back in uh, 167 hours. I have no guests scheduled for that program. I'll have to get to work on that, but it'll be interesting, whatever it is. So I will uh, I will say that you have been listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. I'll be back in 167 hours with more incredible information. Thank you for tuning in. 